This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Greetings, folks. My name is Dr. Jamar Tisby, and welcome to another episode of Footnotes. Every episode is special, but this one, this is why we have the podcast. It is near and dear to my heart as a historian, as someone who lives in the Delta, as someone who's working for racial justice. My guest today has been an editor, a journalist, founding member of the National Association of Black Journalists. He has taught in many different capacities. He has also been the field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Mississippi in the Civil Rights Movement. Charlie Cobb, welcome to Footnotes. Well, thank you, and I am happy to be here. I, I'm honored because um, I live in the Delta. I study your work. And folks like you give me inspiration just to just to give you your flowers. I know people have recognized your contributions and your achievement and your very being. But I just want to add to that and say that real people like you working diligently, wisely, persistently for justice um, are are, are are building a legacy. We're going to talk about SNCC Legacy Project. You're building a legacy. I'm a recipient. This is one of um, the highest honors that I have in this podcast is to talk to folks like you. So I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you for listening or being here. Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this is going to be fun. Um, I get to introduce some of my listeners to you and your work. Many of them wouldn't know what the student nonviolent Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee is or was, how would you describe it to, to, to someone who's kind of new to it? Well, we were an organization of organizers, uh, basically, to put it in one sentence. And we grew into organizers out of the uh, eruption of student protests, basically coming off HBCUs in 1960, this is a very specific date, in fact, February 1, 1960, four students from North Carolina A&T, a black school in Greensboro, North Carolina, walked into a Woolworth, did a little shopping, sat down at the lunch counter in the store and tried to get some stuff, I think donuts, coffee, soft drink, something like that, things students would get cheap and tasty, uh, and were refused service. And they sat there until the store closed. And of course, in a town like Greensboro or on a campus like A&T, the word spread and the next day more students came. And the next day more students uh, came occupying every seat uh, at the lunch counter. Meanwhile, word is spreading to other HBCUs. And within a couple of months, uh, there were sit-ins in about which is what they were called in about 80 Southern cities, challenging segregation. Out of that grew SNCC. Ella Baker, a critical figure, 
both in the larger expanse of Southern history that goes beyond SNCC, before SNCC, and after SNCC. Ella Baker, a North Carolina native, you know, who was then the temporary executive director of Martin Luther King's SCLC, immediately recognized the significance of this student protest and convened a meeting. She got $500 from Martin Luther King to convene a meeting at her alma mater, which was in Raleigh, North Carolina, Shaw College, then Shaw University now, and to bring the students together because nobody knew anybody. I mean, you would hear about Atlanta students sitting in or Nashville students sitting in or Orangeburg students, but nobody actually. And she thought the students should meet and sent out a letter you know, inviting uh, students to gather. She was expecting about 100. I think a couple of hundred showed up. And out of this, and Martin Luther King, I should mention, gave the money for this conference because he was looking for a student wing of his organization, SCLC. But Ms. Baker was going around and suggested, well, maybe you want to think about founding your own organization. And out of this uh, grew SNCC. And the first thing Ms. Baker said to this body of students was, what you're doing is about more than a hamburger and a Coke. I remember that, yes. (laughs) And she began talking about the necessity to really, and it was not something on the students' minds, really. Remember, this is a student protest that's unfolding. And she's raising, at that very first meeting, the necessity of digging into communities and organizing. Mm. And SNCC is formed around, still around protest, but that idea stays with SNCC and the discussion uh, is continuing pretty soon. Um, and this is all happening. The students' sit-ins broke out on February 1, 1960. And this is all, and the student gathering was April 1960. Oh, and yeah. the second meeting that led to the actual formal uh, establishment of SNCC happens in October 1960. So this right. is happening all within that, the year 1960. Wow. And pretty soon, and that same year, and here I wouldn't want to be held to the date, the first student. The students decide in order to do this, you have to be more than a student. Hmm. You have to commit full time, at least for a little while. Wow. And the first of these students to commit to doing that, who just passed away a couple of weeks ago, is Charlie Sherrod, Sherrod, a a Virginia student. He drops out of school. He's in divinity school. And pretty soon you have a, a small core of students Leaving school, planning to 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 do this, there was no nobody was talking about making this a career. Mm. You know, nobody was talking about this as a lifetime effort. But yeah, you can drop out of school for a semester or two semesters, that kind of thing, to begin to explore what Miss Baker is suggesting: mm-hmm. digging into communities and organizing at the grass. Roots, and that's what begins to happen, and that thus begins a slow transition transition among the students that now are a part of SNCC. And there's more to this. this is a complex of history. Course. I recommend Clay Carson's book uh, on struggle. SNCC, yeah, uh, and who who gets into the actual history, or Wesley Hogan's 
book on on SNCC uh, that uh, gets in there. But basically, there's a slow transition from protesters, you know, sitting in and all of that, which is not to disparage sitting in and all that, but a slow transition from protesters to grassroots community organizers, learning how to dig into communities, not to build SNCC chapters, mm. you know, but learning how to dig and encourage people to uh, begin to organize for change. Yeah. Because you could tell in all these little communities, and, they lo- and SNCC also does something very significant. It decides to do this in the rural Black Belt South, which has largely yeah. been ignored by mainstream uh, civil rights organizations because those organizations uh, without naming them but they were mainstream felt that doing this kind of thing was too dangerous and you got too little result for yes. the kind of danger uh, that doing this involved so you had especially in ACP chapters you had a lot and Miss Baker in the 1940s had been the NACP's director of Southern Branches. So she had organized all of these local branches across the South, and they felt ignored. And it helped us because to go into these little bitty places and say you were one of Ella Baker's people gave you serious credentials because she was, although she wasn't in the newspapers or anything like that, she was maybe in the rural Black Belt South, one of the most highly regarded people. Absolutely. You were one of Miss Baker's people. It meant, and she was Miss Baker to us because she was 57 years old when she made her way to wow. us. And remember, wow. I'm 19 years old when I go to Mississippi. So, <laughs> so she, and, and the way we had been raised She's well, definitely Miss Baker. You were, you, there was no Ella. <laughs> she was not right. Ella to us. She was Miss Baker. <laughs> and and <laughs> she gave us a lot of introductions to these communities. And it was clear almost immediately that among the leadership in these rural communities, the thing that they felt most Im- was most important was not getting a hamburger at a lunch counter, but voting rights. You know, they, they there was a clear consensus here. You want to do something? What? And Amzie Moore, who was really important to us getting into Mississippi, made it clear clear to us he was not interested in organizing sit-ins in his little bitty town, Cleveland, Mississippi. Yes, I, I don't even well. think it had five thousand people in it. <laughs> he was not interested in having sit-ins. What he saw looking at the sit-ins, and he told me this later, years later that what he saw looking at the sit-in was student energy. Mm. And he wanted to use that student energy to get what he thought was important. And what he thought was important was voter registration. Uh, And he made us welcome. And and he was one of the first grown-ups I met in Mississippi. So that's a very compressed version of a story that we could take three or four hours <laughs> elaborating sure. on. And that relates to how I wound up in, in, in Mississippi. So that's a wonderful explanation. I really appreciate how you talked about Ella Baker and more oh, yeah. than hamburger. Um, she talked about strong people don't need strong leaders. Strong leaders and and- really animated the ethos of SNCC. And I'm curious then, 
how you get involved. Was there a conversation, an event, a light bulb moment that made you say, okay, I got to drop what I'm doing as a 19 year old and get involved with this, this protest movement? Not exactly. It's more more complicated. Um, I was a Howard University student in 1961. Mm. So I became involved in the sit-in movement. And Howard had a student organization, NAG, the Nonviolent Action Group. Stokely Carmichael comes out of that. A whole bunch of people come out of that. And um, we were sitting in, in Maryland and Virginia, which were completely segregated. Uh, because I was involved in uh, the sit-ins there, CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, invited me to a workshop in Houston, Texas for student activists. And I decided to go because I and I got this bus ticket. I think CORE gave me a little money. And the bus and the bus went Washington, D.C., Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, Louisiana. And I my thinking then was, well, it'd be an opportunity to see the whole South just getting from Washington, D.C. to Houston, Texas. And I got off the bus in Jackson, Mississippi. And there's a real lesson in this um, because the students were sitting in. And, you know, we think in many ways of our generation, me, a 19-year-old, as the Emmett Till generation. We all remember the picture in Jet Magazine, or the Jet, as we used to call it, Emmett Till's body. His mother had 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 insisted on an open casket, so she could. So Mississippi was wholly defined to us by the murder of Emmett Till, and we were on either side of his age. He was fourteen; you were either fifteen or sixteen in 1955 when he was killed. So it was hard for me to imagine. I felt it was one thing for me to be sitting in in Maryland and Virginia. But surely something qualitatively different for students in Mississippi to be sitting in. Maybe they had some kind of gene or something like that that I didn't know about. Some kind of courage gene, if you will. Because it was, in our way of thinking, the most worst place in the universe for black people. And I wanted to meet them. So I made my way to their headquarters. The NACP had a local office there, and they gave me directions to the student movement, Mississippi student movement, and I introduced myself. Pretty much as I'm talking to you, I said, well, I'm involved in the sit-ins, and I'm a Howard student. I'm involved in the sit-ins on the way to this workshop in Texas, and I just wanted to meet you and, and get a sense of what you all were doing. And one of these students... I'm talking to Lawrence Giot, who's passed away now, but Lawrence, he was then a Tougaloo student, just graduating from Tougaloo College in Mississippi and was getting ready to go off and work with SNCC in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, and he gets up when I say this, and Giot was a big guy, six feet, a couple hundred pounds, and almost bullying in his tones and he and when he responded to me and i remember the words exactly because you remember the words in these kinds of situations almost exactly he said you're going to texas for a workshop on civil rights what's the point of that when you're standing right here in mississippi <laughs> and then another one of these students jesse harris who has also passed away now chimes in. He says, yeah, man, you're in the war zone here. <laughs> and so they're coming at me 
No better <laughs> education. What you going to do? You're going to talk or you're going to do something. Mm. And, and that's an important piece of civil rights struggle that is often overlooked as much as the movement is defined by challenges to racism and white supremacy and segregation. Perhaps more importantly, the movement is better described as the challenges black people made to one another oh. uh, within the black community. Because if you work, I worked with Mrs. Hamer for a while. And if you travel with Mrs. Hamer, what she's doing is challenging people when she's when she's moving around. She's saying, "Look at me! I'm I got a Mrs. Hamer had a third grade education. She was been a sharecropper all of her life on cotton plantation, and she was what forty six years old. And basically, she was telling people, challenging people. She says, "If I can do this, then you got no excuse yourself." Yes, <laughs> you know, and, and that was the challenge that she was making, and it's not too far from the way Giat and the people in that student movement headquarters were challenging me. We're doing stuff. We're getting ready to do stuff, and they were just beginning their project in the Delta. And I decided it was summertime after all. I didn't have to be in school. I didn't have to go to the conference. I should just, I would stick with them and see what they were doing. That was my response to what Giat and them were saying. So you decided not to go to to Texas. I'm going to stay here in Mississippi. I'm going to see what they're doing. This is going to be the best workshop I can get right now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I go up there with them and I wind up in Sunflower County. That's where Mm. I meet Mrs. Hamer. She and uh, and join the effort at gaining the right to vote wow. up there in Ruleville. Yep. And I'm there all summer. And then at the end, what I hadn't realized was once you do something like that and you're asking people to register to vote, they're putting their lives in danger. Uh, they are putting their work at danger because Mrs. Hamer was kicked off the plantation for trying. And I was with her the first time she tried to register to vote. Whoa. And she was you kicked were, out. You were at the courthouse with her? Yeah, I was at the courthouse. We went Whoa. down with we went down with 19 people, and Mrs. Hammer was one of them. She was just an ordinary person. We did, she didn't stand out until everybody is scared, right? And we didn't have a we couldn't say to them, we can protect you. We had nothing to offer them to that if violence happened. We were going the courthouse in Sunflower County where we were was the birth where the citizens white citizens council was born. Indianola, Mississippi. And so so you're going into the heartland of the White Citizens Council. Everybody's scared on the bus. None of the SNCC people could say, well, we can protect you or whatever. Then from Mrs. Hamer starts singing from her seat in the bus. You know, she has this powerful voice and she's singing. She's singing these kind of both church songs and kind of movement song. This little light of mine or something. You know, she's singing these songs. And just through the sheer power of her voice, mm. not any words from the Snickfield Secretary, the sheer power of her voice, she shored up those people. Mm. And, and whatever she gave them through her singing, strengthening, strengthened them. I remember that vividly. It's one of my most vivid early and earliest members, member re- memories of working in Mississippi, right? And so 
I'm, yeah. I still haven't left Mississippi for Washington, back to Washington. So at the end of the summer, this is in August of 1962, I realized, well, I couldn't just say, well, folks, it's been interesting, <laughs> but I have to register for classes <laughs> or whatever. I, I couldn't I do that. I'm not made up that way. You know, all these, these, months. Yeah, these, pe- yeah. these people have put their lives at risk. Wow. They put their work at risk. So I stayed. And that stay wound up being almost five years. I was supposed to be here for two years. It's been almost 20, uh, but yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. So I stayed, you know, and I worked up, I never, I basically worked in the Delta. There were a few times I left the state to do some other things for SNCC, but, uh, I stayed working uh, right through Lyndon Johnson and the Congress uh, yeah. passing the the right to vote, and then I felt well, maybe I can I can get back to my other life. <laughs> sure, you were, and that's how the, voting rights they passed the law. Now yeah, 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 and that's happening. All the you know, all of us. I mean, we're all between. I think the youngest person, June Johnson, who's passed, was fifteen mm. years old. Uh, uh, but all of us are barely out of our teens and barely into our twenties. And we're involved in Alabama and Mississippi and Arkansas, where you are now in the Arkansas Delta, where you are exactly. now and the Georgia and, uh, Virginia and these, these places in, in the black belt, essentially, and trying to organize people basically to take control of their own lives. And that's not something we can do for them. They have to decide they want to control their own lives. If they want to do that, we were prepared to help them. Yeah. Yeah. You made that really important point that, that, that what, what is remarkable about the movement is really what was happening within the black community. Yes. Black people challenging one another. Can you talk more about that? What, what, what was the challenge black folks made to one another? Well, part of it is what is driving. This is fear. I don't think people today have a sense, a meaningful sense of how violent the black belt South was. This is not simply mm-hmm. making a political decision to register to vote or something. This is making a decision that may put your life in danger or your family in danger or your livelihood at risk, particularly if you're a sharecropper working on a cotton plantation or picking tobacco or sugarcane or or any of these crops that require a check. That's a, you know, and people have to make up their minds that they're going to do this. And the way they make up their mind, of course, is not simply listening to Charlie Cobb, but also by talking to one another. Mm -hmm. And the way you get them to talk to one another, this is the organizing mission, is you embed yourself in their lives. And you sit down with the ladies and watch the soap opera. And you go to church with them and you eat dinner with them. And you, we weren't staying at hotels. We were staying in people's homes. I have, here's a story that illustrates that. Uh, the first person I stayed with, in fact, family I stayed with, the McDonald's, Joe and Rebecca McDonald. Now, Mr. McDonald was 76 years old. And there had been, a sh- there had been shootings. Uh, and two girls had gotten wounded. And the mayor of this little bitty town, Ruleville, arrested me for doing it. Oh. Right? <laughs> he oh, said, 
he said it was a publicity stunt. And I, we were failing in this voter registration effort. And I had orchestrated this shooting. It resulted in these two wow. girls getting killed uh, to generate publicity. And he hands me over to the town's town constable, who's the brother of the man, as it happens, oh, that killed him at Till. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and, but he was the town constable in this little town, Ruville, which had about a thousand people in it. And I'm hauled off to jail, right? But this is all just an, an attempt to intimidate. And he lets me go the next morning, literally kicks me out of the jail, the little three-room jail. I never will forget it. And the cells, I was worried because the cells opened out onto the street. So somebody oh. could walk up to the cell and either speak to you or shoot you. What? <laughs> so, this is the rural black belt, right? So he kicks me out. He, he kicks yeah. me out of jail because the whole thing was bogus. Right. Of so, is that your first uh, time in jail? First time getting arrested in Mississippi? Yeah, Mississippi. not my first time. Not my first time in jail. So I go back to the house, and it turns out that the constable Milam has confiscated the rifle of the man I'm staying with, the family I'm wow. staying with, wow. Mr. McDonald or Mr. Joe, as we called him. He'd taken his rifle. And this is a problem because he had me and another, two other Snickfield secretaries staying in his house with his wife. And he used to go out every morning hunting to put food on the table. Sure. And without his rifle, he can't do that. He also used his rifle. He would sit on the back porch and shoot varmints. Uh, attacking his little garden back there. You know, this is Southern rural life. Part of the and, culture. And uh, so I tell him, and this is where, you know, people have to, people decide for themselves. You can help them by giving them information. So I tell him, he's worried about his gut. So I tell him, well, you have a right to your gut, Mr. Joe. And he asked me if I'm sure. And as it happened, we had a book with us that had the U copy of the U.S. Constitution in it. Oh. So I get the book, I open it up, and I turn to the Second Amendment in the U.S. Constitution. I read it out loud to him. <laughs> I, I said, and uh, Matt, Charles McLaurin was with us. He, say, he tells Mr. Joe, he says, you see, it's right here in the United States Constitution. You have a right to your gun. And then Mr. Joe tells me to fold over the page where we had just read to him and takes the book from me. Now, I forget about this, but then I, I re we realize a couple hours later that Mr. Joe is nowhere, nowhere around. So we asked his wife, Rebecca, he said, well, where's Mr. Joe? And he, she tells us, well, he went to get his gun. You oh. said it was all right. Now, the last oh. thing I need is to have somebody get, killed because he's gone down to city hall to demand his gun back yeah. Yeah. so we were getting ready to run after him and we hear his old raggedy truck pulling up and we race out to the truck and we say uh well you went down to city hall mr joe what happened and he says i told the mayor this is a little town so you can walk into these places and he says i told the mayor i come to get my gun <laughs> and we say, well, what happened? He says, he says, I didn't have, I didn't have the right to my gun. Uh, and then he, he said, then he tells us, but I brought the book and I <laughs> opened it up 
And I told him, it says right here <laughs> that I have a right to my gun. And sure enough, the mayor gave him the gun back. Whoa. I remember him, because he, he steps out of the truck and he's holding his rifle with his big <laughs> grin on his face. So there's a that's the kind of balance the organizer has or the people you're working with um, uh, in the community, right? I mean, and he trusts Because the thing to understand about Mr. Joe with his 76-year-old, he was 76-year-old and couldn't read and write. So everything he said was based on his trust oh that I gracious. what I told him was in the book. Well, if the mayor had asked him down there to read it to him, he couldn't have done it. Mm, he couldn't he have done. Absolutely. And, 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 <laughs> and, the, and the level of responsibility uh, that you all felt because as you as these folks are taking a stand for voting rights, for their own gun rights or whatever, they are putting themselves in harm's way. Yes. In so many different ways. They and they are trusting you as the organizer, but you are trusting that with the information, they'll make the right decision. Okay. That's that's what's going on. It's a, it's a it's a, it's a relationship that can only happen if you've dug into the community deeply enough to people like Mr. Joe who would accept. Uh, I, there are lots of stories like this sure, in, all sure. across the the black belt at different hey, at different. Let's jokingly like to tell the story of bringing a group down to. To, to register to vote. This is in Lowndes County, Alabama. All right. And this old lady, she's getting ready to go in to register to vote. And she turns to him and she pulls a, a Stokely said, a rusty old Civil War looking pistol out of her pocketbook and says, son, you better hold this for me because I'm going in there to try and register to vote. <laughs> so there, I mean, there's lots of stories that what they illustrate is that it's possible to dig into these communities in a way that people really do trust you. Because in some ways they're putting their lives in their belief that what you're telling them or encouraging them to do is legitimate. And you, that just does not happen overnight. Particularly no. Mississippi, I was unusual in Mississippi because I came – from Washington, D.C., most of the people, young people my age in the movement were native Mississippians. Oh, There were only okay. three of us. We had 23 people in the state in 1963, and only myself, Bob Moses, and, and Frank Smith. Frank was, came over from Morehouse College. That's it. Everybody else was native wow. to the state. So in some okay. ways, they had more at risk than I did. I mean, you know, nobody was going to bomb my parents' home in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. or uh, I, I just didn't run that, that yeah. risk. But the young people with me, they had Annie, Annie Moody, who, who was passed, but who wrote the book Coming of Age in Mississippi, talks mm -hmm. about the, 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 her worry about and what happened to her family. She chose to work. But she chose to work on the other side of the state <laughs> yeah, from where she grew up. But she was still worried about what would sure. happen. And there was harassment of her sure. family in Wilkerson County, which is in Southwest Mississippi. And she was working in 
Canton, which is sort of in the center. Mm-hmm. And I'm so city. glad you're you're talking about what the risk is because a couple of things that 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 I think we need to hear today as we continue to try to work toward justice is one count the cost like this is not light work um there is risk involved and even though the risks today may be different than you know 50 60 years ago it it is costly and it's always going to be costly and And the process is the same yeah you try and embed yourself in a community you try you know i think it's probably it's certainly different i mean i'm working in the rural south and i can tell you anything you need to know about organizing in the rural south that that's different than the west side of chicago or south central la Uh, so there are differences and, and the level of violence, except for the police is, is, is greater than, I mean, we, we had to worry about the Ku Klux Klan and spy organizations like the state sovereignty commission and uh, stuff like that. And that's not a worry today, but there are different things that are right. Right. Vicious and worrying. And, and, and so far we've talked a lot about that physical violence, whether, um, you know, the ability to keep, I mean, black folks had guns, part, first, of, first of all, part yes. of the rule of South culture. And then secondly, because it was, it was survival. And you wrote a book, <laughs> I love the title, that nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Um, yes. And it's so interesting, you're working with the student nonviolent coordinating committee, right? Um, the, the, the movement even today is remembered largely as a nonviolent one. Can you talk to us about the role of nonviolence in these protests and whether, um, what I'm asking. Nonviolence. Yeah, I know what you're asking. Nonviolence more or less works if you're having a sit-in, which generally is going to be in a city. Because these little rural towns didn't have Woolworth lunch counters and stuff like that. So once you're in the rural black belt, the whole question of nonviolence really becomes moot. It, it, it really doesn't exist, you know, uh, in, in these little towns. And, and anyway, and the culture, black or white, is an armed culture. You know, guns are everywhere. I never stayed in a house that didn't have a shotgun in the corner or a Winchester on the wall or a pistol pistol on the... That's just the culture. It's been that way for 100 years before we even got there yeah. after the Civil War. That's the way it was. And you're not going to argue, you know, you're not going to argue against that in any effective way. And the title of this book, I did, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, which is subtitled How Guns Made the Civil Rights Movement Possible, uh, comes from a farmer, a black farmer. He met, and this is in early 1964, he met Martin Luther King, who was touring Mississippi. And of course, Hartman Turnbull was his name. And Hartman, if you you talk to anybody involved in the Mississippi movement, Hartman Turnbull was a legendary figure. There's several legendary figures. He doesn't make it into the public consciousness the way, say, Mrs. Hamer does. But he was a legendary figure in Mississippi. And after the courtesies of greeting, he looked at Reverend King because Mr. Turnbull was not known to bite his tongue. Mm. He said, and I quote him exactly, Reverend King, this nonviolence stuff ain't no good. It'll get you killed. And 
<laughs> that was just too, it was just too long for a title so i just shortened it this nonviolent stuff will get you killed uh, but he was right and 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 he was worried that king was going to get killed he king was a hero yeah but he was absolutely right and that's where that title comes. and i always tell people i have to give my props to, to Mr. Turnbull. There you go. <laughs> you know, because that was not something Charlie Cobb created. That that came out of the mouth of a Mississippi uh, farm owner. Uh, uh, Who knew exactly what the uh, white power structure was capable uh, yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, in a lot of ways, I'll tell you another story. Uh, you need a Blackwell, another legendary figure. Okay. Yeah. In Mississippi's movie, Issaquina County, Mississippi. And she was the leader. And there's a whole story to be told about women and leadership in, mm. in Mississippi. But Unita is one who illustrates women in leadership. And she was organizing for voting rights and the like. But I noticed her husband had never gone down to the county courthouse to try and register to vote. So I asked him. Uh, one day I said, well, how come your wife is the leader of the movement here in Essequina County. So how, how are, how come you, as far as I know, have never gone down to try and register to vote? He said, look, Charlie, if I go down to that county courthouse, I'm not going without my pistol. And if one of these white people, I won't use the word he used, but mess with <laughs> me, yeah. I'm going to shoot him. <laughs> he oh, said no, no, no. so he said i know that's going to cause you some problems so it's best that i not wow. go <laughs> so that probably is more typical of discussions about nonviolence and violence and self defense than some philosophical discussion about gandhi and 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 all that it just that's not the way conversations went it was much more in pragmatic. the rural South. It was very yeah. prag pragmatic, and and everybody was you weren't going to argue against it. Everybody was in agreement that you had the right to defend yourself. Nobody was going to argue. Even the white people accepted <laughs> that. <laughs> so somebody We're comes. Like, if night riders come to your farm, and there's lots of stories, mm. and some of which I put in that book. You yep. just cited. Yep. There's lots of stories uh, about that. Uh, I only know know one person who who was ever sent to jail for for, and he was he another legend, Seal Chin. Hmm. Seal oh, Chin, yeah. he was the first black guy I ever saw wearing a pistol and a holster strapped around his open waist. carry, open okay. carry, and and he and that's how I had never seen that. Uh, wow. before and when the when the night riders and he ran a a nightclub in this town canton he did bootleg whiskey he had women and oh he was he was kind of an outlaw to start with but I, he's I, I <laughs> he supported the movement he supported mm. and as far as he was concerned his mission was to protect movement people that's wow. what he was going to do. And nobody messed with Seal Chin, even the sheriff. <laughs> they got in a fist fight one day, the sheriff Ooh. and Seal Chin. But uh, anyway, anyway, when he went to jail, because when the Night Riders attacked his house, uh, he drove him away with his rifle. 
And then when they fled, got in his car and chased them. Chased them. <laughs> and chased them to the Ku Klux Klan hangout, this gas station. Whoa. And still shot that up. Whoa. <laughs> and he was sent to jail for that. That's a bad man. Yes, he was. Nobody messed with CO. And wow. uh, and these are all people, remember, our parents' age. Mm-hmm. These are not these all these people engaged in the gunplay were either the age of our parents or our grandparents. Mm. I remember Janie Brewer making Molotov cocktails in her kitchen sink and she was in her eighties. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> to drive Whoa. away. So there's a I tell a lot of that story in this. Yeah. So I mean this, it's it's, so it's nonviolent in terms of its public demonstrations. Yeah, those those make sense. Those make yeah. sense. And you can choose. See, where we were in Mississippi, you didn't have any choice. The the clan or somebody shoots up your house. You don't really have any choice about what to if people come to where you're staying and shoot it up or, or, and the people you're staying with fire back Mm. at a lunch counter, sit in, you do have choices. You can choose to sit in and you, if you know that, and you know, there's going to be violence and you can choose knowing there's going to be violence to respond with nonviolence or not participating in the sit in at all, because you know, shooting it out at a Woolworth lunch counter isn't gonna. This is just a practical decision. That's not gonna solve yeah. any anything. So you could choose to do that or not choose to do that. Howard, most of the students weren't sitting in. Sure. They may have been sympathetic, but they weren't sitting in. They weren't making that kind of choice. But if you're working in Mississippi or Alabama, these places, and plan shows up. <laughs> And opens fire. What you know? That's not the result of. That's not the result of something you're doing exactly. That's just because you're present in the county. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they want to. And they learn that they. And also they learn that violence won't drive you away. So they turn their violence toward the people you're working with in the community. That's right. That's right. And wow. they make the choices about what to do. Or not doing. Most of the time, they chose to defend themselves, and they had rifles and weapons with which to defend themselves. It makes That's sense. the Deacons for Defense and Justice in Louisiana. Exactly. That, I was know, thinking about that. It, you know, and there were other groups not as prominent as as the Deacons, but those are not decisions we made. Mm, mm. You know, those are not decisions we made. We didn't organize the deacons. Core, core, which was really working in Louisiana, didn't make the decision to organize the deacons. Uh, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, there's a group of armed men, a secret group. They had no name. They had they had interesting rules. They they had no name. You had to be a Christian, church going oh, wow. Christian. Oh wow! And you couldn't drink alcohol. Because they thought huh. your tongue would get loose if you, if you drank alcohol. <laughs> they had these very strict rules, and th- their job, their mission was to protect the people who were working with Reverend King. <laughs> okay, and yeah. uh, that's what that's what they were going to do. Because Tuscaloosa, 
I don't know whether you know the story of author and Lucy who integrated mm-hmm. the University of Alabama in the fifties. Uh, but Tuscaloosa was a notorious uh, Ku Klux Klan for sure. Yep. Uh, town. But these guys, they were basically Korean War veterans. Ooh, okay. And, Trained and, yeah. <laughs> you yes. know, like Robert Williams' group up in North Carolina. Right, right. They, this was another one of the – there were these groups around the South, <laughs> most of which don't make, it, don't make it into the pages of uh, – that's the real Ooh. history. <laughs> they don't right, make right, it right. into the into the history books the way they should, particularly war veterans, World War One veterans, World War II veterans, and Korean War veterans were an important piece of how communities were protected. Not SNCC field secretaries, not core field <laughs> secretaries. No, these guys, the ages of our parents and grandparents, uncles. And what you're doing is revising our understanding of the movement in helpful ways. Uh, I love it when you quote uh, Julian Bond. <laughs> and you're talking, he's talking about... Um, let me see what he say. Uh, he said, Rosa sat down. Oh, Martin, yeah. Uh, Martin and then the Stewart. white folks saw the light and uh, saved, and the, saved day. it. Yeah, that was <laughs> Julian. I, that was just when I was beginning this book. And, and I, I was I was talking to Julian about what I intended to do. I don't think I put a word down on uh, paper. And and I somehow the conversation, conversation came up about history and how people understood the civil rights struggle. And uh, he said... Uh, well, the average person, uh, what the average person understands can be boiled down to three sentences is what he said. He says, Rosa sat down, Martin stood up, and then the white folks saw the light and saved the day. That was, that was Julian. <laughs> the white folks <laughs> saved the day. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I would add another. I, I, I would add another. And okay. If I had to add a fourth sentence, it would be a uh, in 1966, Stokely Carmichael shouted out "Black Power" and betrayed the movement. <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. And that's the fourth sentence. In uh, that. I got to ask you to expound on that um, because I think what you're getting at is we see the civil rights movement as heroic because it was nonviolent. Mm, it was, yeah. you know, suits and love and redemptive and suffering and, all and of that. redemptive all of that. suffering, all of that yeah. beloved community. And then we look at the black power movement as a, this, you know, sharp left turn into radicalism and violence and whatever. So how would you correct that? misunderstanding well it's you know it just wasn't that i mean black power was what the movement had always been about ah, yeah. when when amzie moore wanted sick to come to mississippi and he and we slept at his house what he was interested in was using student energy to gain black power for black people. And the way he saw doing that was through the vote. The numbers were there. His little mm-hmm. county was two-thirds black, and only a handful of black people were registered to vote. So his vision was black power. Uh, we, in fact, weren't even thinking much about it until we got involved with Amzie and E.W. Steptoe, a whole lot of people. We, we, we got 
in, involved with down on the ground in Mississippi. So black power was not a SNCC idea or a Stokely Carmichael idea. This was the people's idea. They knew they had the numbers to acquire real, meaningful power. The question was how those numbers can be organized, yeah. how those numbers can affect the system that they're, everybody's living under. And the most obvious thing to tackle is the denial of the right to vote, if you want, if you want to. So that's one yeah. mistake people make in their now. Two, if you read Stokely, uh, there's not a lot of calls for armed resistance on his part or anybody else. There is a story about self-defense and arms, but it doesn't exist in the South. There is a discussion to be had about the Black Panther Party that sure. emerged in Oakland, California, uh, and why they were armed. Yeah. That's not the discussion. That's a discussion out above the Mason and Dixon line. Okay. So violence isn't really meaningfully in the Black Power discussion as it emerged uh, in the South. It was it was about uh, pride, self-determination. Yeah, I was going to say pride is a part of it because yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 you can't, it's not just acquiring the right to vote, it's also acquiring a, a different kind of sense of yourself That's because what the system does is try and make you believe in your own inferiority. And, and, and if that's, if you believe in your own inferiority, you'll never acquire the kind of power that you need to have a meaningful life. And so that's embedded in the call. There's a whole discussion to be had about black power and some of it we have on the SNCC website, but, but they were, it's funny, you know, I look at the, I've seen more times than I can count. The footage of Stokely in in Mississippi when he first his finger is pointing like this and he's shouting out and that's what terrified them that it was no um, longer the the loving redemptive kind of thing say that John Lewis has or had it's not that Stokely is angry he had just been released from jail uh, Stokely is angry a lot of the SNCC people are frustrated because they were you what there? they I wasn't at that particular moment. No, I was in another part of Mississippi. I was in the okay. state. And, you know, there was a lot of anger and frustration, partly because by this time, remember, we're talking 1966. So many of us have been working for three or four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could see now that uh, what we were up against was something more complicated and more powerful than we had realized initially, sure. you know, and we, we were struggling to find a way <laughs> to address that. I don't think we did a very good job in, in, in coming up with answers, but we recognized that there's something much larger that we were up against and, and we need to, needed to figure out. And part of Stokely's call for black power was it was an effort to articulate how to deal with this system. 
which was not just a Mississippi system or a Southern system, that this system that really uh, reduced our humanity, in fact. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and that's where the discussion should be. But even the black leaders felt that Stokely's call threatened them, you know, partly because mm-hmm. it threatened their relationships with these white people who gave them money or these political people who gave them political support. And, and then there's these SNCC people. Uh, Jim Foreman's book, you can get a real sense of that. Uh, in Jim Foreman's book, The Making of Black, revolutionaries. Jim Foreman was the executive director of SNCC, and he has in it really uh, minutes from a 1964 meeting between SNCC people, NAC people, NAACP people, and a National Council of, Church, Council of Churches people, and maybe a couple right. of others. Yeah. And they're all beating up on the SNCC people about their language and posture <laughs> And Demeter, and I remember at one point, uh, somebody, I forget who, uh, talks about uh, the work at the grassroots and that they don't need to be talking to the SNCC people. They need to be talking to these farmers in Mississippi. And one of the officials, from an NACP official, says, I don't need to be talking to these (laughs) uh, farmers. What do they got to say? Uh, you know, and, wow. and, and you got a real sense of the attitude. Yeah. This is in the post black flower articulation by, uh, by Stokely. So in some ways it's a, it's a class issue. I mean, yes. you know, I remember, I'll tell you one story about, uh, that, uh, from comes from Mrs. Hammer. Come on. Yes, please. In 1964, you know, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party challenged the legitimacy of the all-white Mississippi delegation to the Democratic Party's national convention. And ultimately, they're offered a compromise, which the MFDP rejects. They're offered, I think they're offered two seats, no votes, but sort of observers that we have, you could have two people who and the NSFDP, as, as Ms. Hamer said once, I didn't come up here for no two seats. And, <laughs> but anyway, afterward, Adam Clayton Powell, then the congressman from ha- ha- uh, Harlem, mm-hmm. comes up to Mrs. Hamer to criticize her and the decision of the MFDP uh, in rejecting these seats. And then he kind of ends his criticism by saying, and do you know who I am? Ms. Hamer, in classic Mrs. Hamer style, says, I know who you are. You Adam Clayton Powell, the congressman from Harlem. And then she goes on, classic Mrs. Hamer. She says, but I want to know how many bales of cotton have you picked? <laughs> and shut him <laughs> right down. Wow. You, see, you see, that's part of the tension <laughs> there. Uh, wow. This, this is before Stokely shouts out yeah, yeah, black yeah. power. But, but see, really those cool. tensions are, those need to be explored more than that's, the history that's, does. That's you right. know, it's not the whole story, tensions, and, and because there were people, say, within the NACP who really supported SNCC. 
and and appreciated what SNCC was doing. So people are, but it's a lot more complex than yeah, than they're a lot more complicated than Stokely yeah. the bad guy and oh, Diane okay. Nash the good woman of nonviolence and empty uh, <laughs> suffering. You know, it's a lot more complicated. And these are human beings. People forget you're talking about human beings here. Yeah, you know, they're it trying is, to grapple with this whole this system. Like history. This is why I love talking to folks like you because you were there. You can you can tell us you know more accurately what it was like. Mm-hmm. Now I'm wondering, you know, in terms of reflecting as we record this, it is election day for midterms, uh, yeah. 2022. My my goodness, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I don't know. What wisdom do you have for this moment? We we, we got a lot of wisdom. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. Speak <laughs> from your experience because, you know, people are afraid we are losing, if not already lost our, our democracy. The same voting rights you were protesting for in the 1960s are under threat today. I mean, give us some perspective. Well, yes, there's lots of ground. In some ways, these are unprecedented times. Partly because you have a former president, and I'll spare you the history of his presidency and just confine myself to his post-presidency life. We have a former president, Donald Trump, in an unprecedented way in the entire history of the United States, with the possible exception with some differences of the debates in Congress leading up to the Civil War. In an unprecedented way, has incurred violence, who has attacked the very institutions that, despite their shortcomings, have really facilitated democracy in this country. Uh, I'm not saying that everything that preceded Donald Trump was perfect or anything like that, but his attacks both on the characters and the rules, is unprecedented. There's been nothing like this mm. in American history. And I'm uncertain about where this is going to come out. Mm. Congress is cowardly. Uh, a lot of the leadership, political leadership, certainly on the Republican side, but I also I have another level of criticism of media and how they mm. enabled Trump and people like him. Sure. Uh, uh, I'm not certain how any of this is going to come out. Uh, I think of the Wimmer, Wimmer yep. no, mm-hmm. post-Nazi yep. government in Germany. And something like this, I think, was going on in Germany as well, that ultimately led to the emergence of history of Hitler as as dictator and ruler of Germany, the Nazi Party. Trump has managed to to cultivate a core group of people who feel that if democracy means the meaningful participation of black and brown people, I don't want it. <laughs> I mean, he's cultivated a core yes. group, and, and it doesn't take about that. Yeah, and I, I, you know, in my reporting life, I was a foreign affairs reporter, mm. and I've been in the middle of coup d'etats. I've been mm. in the middle of takeovers of governments, and and I know 
what the signs are. I know that you don't need a majority <laughs> to sabotage a government. Uh, and I, I'd be dishonest if I didn't say that my experience as a reporter, my reading of history, and I'm not a trained historian, causes me worry about what I see in the United States. On the other hand, there's a level at which I'm optimistic. I spend a lot of time with the movement for black lives, young people, the millennials. Okay. okay. And I, I've talked to them. My next book is going to be about them. Oh, great. Uh, and I like a lot of what I hear. And they're struggling themselves to figure out, like we did, what to do beyond protests. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're very good at mobilizing for protests. Mm -hmm. Not so certain about how you organize right long term in communities yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know and here age both helps and harms us i could say my age says that nothing that's important gets done in a hurry <laughs> cuz here i am at my age i'm <laughs> I, you know damn oh, they are twice the age of some of these <laughs> uh young people uh so yeah. i could say it's not like struggle disappears you know, it's, you know, just the way we leaned on older people like Ella Baker and and the like, you know, feel free to lean on us for whatever. That's part of what the SNCC Legacy Project I'm gonna take you up is, a, is about. Feel free to lean on us. And we're not interested in running your organizations. <laughs> but if you need to know something about our experience that you think will help you with your experience, we're here. We're not hiding. That's and good. and we're not uh, reluctant. That's good to talk to you. You need to know that there's at least one group of people <laughs> out here. And I've got is. to pick you up on that, especially on the mic, because I want this to get to as many people. But also, just for me personally, this has been soul filling. Um, but it's really just the beginning of a conversation. And so, SNCC Digital Gateway, yeah, are that's doing incredible work. Yeah, but that, that evolved. See, uh, it was born at our 50th anniversary. We had a conference on the 50th anniversary of the founding of SNCC. And one of the things that emerged from that was the SNCC Legacy Project. Mm. And our idea was that we needed to get together to figure out how to convey our history and within the context of our history, the larger movement history. That's that's what we had a discussion about. We had no idea about how we might do that, but that's what we felt was important. And that led to a variety of things. The first digital experiment that we did was uh, around voting rights. And, and we had worked out a relationship with Duke University, partly because we knew the historian. So, so uh, Tim Tyson was then there. Yeah. Uh, Wesley Hogan was yeah. running the Center for Documentary Studies. We, there was a whole set of people, maybe because the university is a Southern school and, and we had been interacting uh, there in terms of their needs as historians for the most part. Fantastic. And that, yeah. and that led to a formal relationship. We, by formal, I mean, memorandums of understanding and all of this. Mm. We sat around the table pre-COVID. We sat mm. around the table. And this was 10 years ago. 
sat around the table discussing how to approach history, uh, where Duke it. might fit. We were lucky in, in that response of having a set of scholars. And we decided to expand the group. We invited scholars from Emily Crosby, who's a native Mississippian, yep. but is up at uh, upstate New York. I forget, uh, Genesee, something, like some school up there. We invited uh, Hassan Kwame Jeffries, who's out yeah. in Ohio, but he had done a really important book on Lowndes County, Alabama. So we expanded this and we could meet. Duke put up the money for us to come together, stay in a hotel yeah. and all of that. So we could meet and we had these continuing discussions that eventually led to the SNCC Digital Gateway. Now you can get to that via uh, SNCC, S-N-C-C, legacyproject.org. And that will open up a homepage that also, there are three, provide entrances to three you can choose. One is a uh, the SNCC Digital Gateway, of course. The other is the CrimVet site. Uh, the Bruce Hartford, he's uh, in um, California, also ha- has a site, Civil Rights Movement Veterans site. Mm. And then we have a Black Power Chronicles site. You can get to all of that via the, by the SNCClegacy.org. And, but we began this 10 years ago. And now we're in discussion with some of the young activists today. We, we tell them, you don't have to wait till you're as old as we are. You need to show, and not, not can, you need to do it because when other people write your history, yes. you're not going to like it. Yes. <laughs> so the yes. best thing to do is put your history out That's there. And, and we're doing an experimental project, again, via Duke. Uh, which we'll have about three or four of these groups begin to document. Oh, fantastic. Uh, and what their I love, history. this is all free and available. Like, oh, yeah. That's one of, the, that was one of our insistence. We told Duke, if, if we do this using your campus, there can't be any barriers to accessing what we do, you know, uh, no money, no password, there are no passwords required, <laughs> no money Unreal. is required. All you have to be is interested. Available on the web, and we'll put it in the show notes. My very last question for you, as we talk about the Legacy Project, as we talk about your experience, um, if you can articulate it, what do you hope your personal legacy as Charlie Cobb would be? Oh, I, I don't think that way. So it's difficult for me to directly answer. What I hope, though, is in, in my way, little way. And I, I'm primary after a long career as a journalist for magazines and radio. I did a lot of NPR. I was, a, I've been a, a reporter for WHUR radio at Howard University. Okay. I've been a foreign affairs reporter at NPR. I did films for Frontline in its mm. earliest days. And then I spent many years as a writer for National Geographic magazine. So, And I also helped found a, a news site, allafrica.com, mm. which is now the largest source of day-to-day news about Africa. Amazing. It's not a site for essays. It's not. This is news. This is what is happening in this place, that place, and the other place uh, in Africa. 
So I have a, this background in news and writing, and I'm still continuing. My life now is books. Um, right. So I hope that they will find in all of this work useful and clarifying information yes. about the world that they're living in today and what the possibilities are for the world they live in, will be living in tomorrow. I said, I tell them all the time, here I'm talking about millennials. Uh-huh. I said, it's not like I'm going to be around for the next hundred uh-huh. years. <laughs> you know, there's a finite, <laughs> I have a finite existence, <laughs> you know, yes. so I, I'm, I'm trying to provide information that I hope they will find valuable. That's right, because uh, I don't write academic stuff. I tell stories. And, yes. and and I'm trying to reach this younger generation. I'm not trying to impress whoever are the scholarly determiners Understood. Uh, uh, in this world at universities or think tanks. I, I mean, I certainly want to be accurate. I certainly, yeah. and I, but I also have a view of the world. And, uh, and, yeah. uh, and part of my view is that Younger people, the generation behind me, just the way Miss Baker taught us, or Amzie Moore taught us, or E.W. Steptoe taught us, and all the other people taught. Well, I want to do that in writing. You know, I tell them all the time. I say I'm not going to really be marching uh, in protest with you all when you do that. Even if I support, I'm not going to do it. I'm saying, I'm, I'll be yeah. 80 in June. I was just telling some people. Oh my goodness! Uh, Congratulations! Yesterday, yeah, yeah. I said, I said, don't, don't look for me to march on the Capitol, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I will support if that's what you want to do. I will right. support it, right? Oh, and man. I will share my experience. And that you. is, and that's enough for me. I don't worry about the rest of it, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't well, want to leave any monument or, <laughs> you know, pick up a copy of my last book. <laughs> I'd be go. happy. <laughs> well, I I can speak as a recipient of <laughs> of your writing and and your sharing that it is a true gift. It really mm-hmm. is. Um, mm-hmm. This time has been a true gift. You have, I have no doubt, stirred the hearts of some folks who have listened, and they're going to want you to come back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm always available. These days, in some ways, I, in some levels, I don't like this this way of talking, but another way. Yep. It's convenient. I probably talk to more yeah. people in more parts of the country via Zoom and exactly. other kinds of media. Uh, this way, sitting at my dining room table. I'm sitting at my dining room oh, table because right. I, I just came from, I've been traveling for the last week. So Okay, my goodness. So, uh, well, well, I hope you get some rest after that travel. And, and yeah. again, thank you so much uh, for all your work and contribution over so many long decades. Oh. This will be the first of many conversations, I hope. I hope so, too. And I'm always available. <laughs> you know, my telephone number and my email address Got are it. not Got secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Mr. Charlie Cobb. Okay, and thank Jamar. you for listening to this episode of Footnotes. We will catch you next time.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.